This episode of The Tome Show is brought to you by our patrons. You can support the show like them at patreon.com slash thetomeshow. Welcome to the Tome Book Club for February of 2022. The Tome is a D&D news, reviews, and interviews show, and I'm your Tome host, Jeff Greiner. In each book club episode, we discuss one D&D-ish related book, spoilers be damned, in a full book club style. And our book this time around is The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart. Ooh, look at you holding up dead tree copies. Yes. <laughs> with us, as always, uh, is the man with the dead trees, Eric Paquette. Bonjour, hello. Bonjour. Yeah. Comment allez-vous? Well, bien. Très bien. All right, so um, it's appropriate that we're speaking French because it's weird how French Arthurian legend is. Um. <laughs> well, my, first, my most of my experience with uh, Arthurian legends with, is with Chrétien de Troyes, which, who's the one who introduced the Arthurian romancing. No, so the the oldest Arthurian legend I've read, or Arthurian book I've read, um, is a collection of. I mean, I guess it's. I don't know. It's old. I got it from my grandmother. She received it as a Christmas gift in like 1931, um, and I, I was just looking at it tonight because my my youngest son has a name inspired by Arthurian legend, um, and so I was talking to him about the, this book that we've been reading. Um, and so now he's suddenly interested in reading more Arthurian books. So I showed him this one that I read a long time ago, but, but the first time I read it and I, I did it for like a high school book report or whatever. And I, I mentioned to my teacher, uh, like I was a little surprised how much French, how French this iconic English legend is, you know? Um, and she's like, what do you mean? Well, one of the main characters is Lancelot du Lac. Yeah. Which is, his name is just French. <laughs> well, yeah, as well, Chrétien de Troyes is the one who created Lancelot. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah. Interesting. In the okay. 12th, 13th century, so. Uh, and, and well, and I don't know if the paper copy of this book um, that we're reading, that we read for tonight, had the same afterword that the audiobook had. Uh, but the afterword has a, a fairly lengthy afterword uh, from Mary Stewart, sort of explaining her approach to adapting names and parts of the story and where the inspiration and, and where her inspiration came from, because there's a million different versions of, of Arthurian legend. Yeah, there is an author's note, which I did not read. Okay. So, so. I, f- I found it interesting. That's um, cool. But yeah, no, I did not read that part, but <laughs> yeah, so. And I, I, and now I forget what my, oh, oh, one of that, my point was that one of the things that she mentions in there that is that if you, if you travel across the channel, you will find that Arthurian legend is as much alive in Brittany as it is in Britain. So anyway, we lost track of where we were. So so that's what we're we're reading for this episode. Uh, For the next episode, uh, which we'll record towards the end of, it's towards the end of February now, March, April. Uh, we will be reading Tagana or Tagana or however you want to pronounce it. I pronounce it uh, Tagana. <laughs> uh, by Guy Gavriel K, um, who I'm told is Canadian. Yes. Um, 
Eric knows all the Canadians, so he can confirm that for us. Yeah, they're, they're all on my speed dial. Right. All Canadians know each other, right? Yes. Uh, okay, so before we get started in depth, uh, we want to say thank you to our patrons. They help uh, They help me pay the bills uh, for the show. You can also help out by going to patreon.com slash the Tome Show and offering as little as a dollar a month to, to help me keep the show going and going strong. So, The Crystal Cave by Mary Stewart, Eric. Uh, we're going to have to see if the two of us alone can, can hold up a conversation about a book, but uh, what is this book about? Well, it's the basic, the early years of... It's Merlin, the early years, basically. How you got trained, <laughs> yeah, how, you got trained how he, he learned, how the various kings and the high kings that he dealt with before... Arthur was conceived and before well, was born. <laughs> right. So it, it's not entirely before he was conceived. No, <laughs> there, there is just a tiny little bit at the end. That's after he's conceived, but before he's born. <laughs> yes. 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 So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's a, a fair assessment. This, this is, it sort of follows Merlin from, what, how they explicitly say how old he was. He was six years old when they started. Six at the beginning of the book? Yeah, he, I was going to say six or seven. Log, it's old Merlin that we know at right. the end of his story. Uh-huh. He's telling his story of how he started. So right. that's how. So, so it starts with six-year-old Merlin and then jumps to like 12-year-old Merlin and then like 16-year-old Merlin and then 20s Merlin or, or you know, and that's... Um, that may be about as old as he gets is into his twenties. Yeah. Um, but that, but yeah, so it doesn't start with like his birth, although his birth is, um, a, a, a major point, uh, of the story. Yes. Um, cause at the start when he's six year old, people are claiming that he is the son of the devil because right. his, his Merlin's actual name is Mirrodin Emrings, which means child of the light, uh, which is pronounced, Something closer to Mirthen Emrys. Okay. Um, uh, I I struggle with the double D's and the double L's in in Welsh and Celtic languages uh, because apparently those languages have no th, and so they make those sounds with the double D's and the double L's. Uh, but I know Emrys very well because that is the name of my youngest child, uh, who I named for Merlin, um, and, and which is also why one of the big surprising reveals of the story was not a surprise to me at all because I also happen to know that uh, Mirthen Emrys translates to Merlinus Ambrosius um, which makes the the big surprise not very surprising at all yes. <laughs> right <laughs> um, so yeah so um, you get to see the early Merlin he's um, He's kind of an always underfoot um, member of the court, but not even really considered a member of the court. His mother is the daughter of the king, so technically he's royal. Um, and they're in, in South Wales. Because, yeah. um, of course, this is the, the era before there was any united part of the United Kingdom. That is that is the story of Arthur, is the uniting of the United Kingdom. Yes. Um, and so um, he's the the son of the daughter of the king, but 
he's a bastard and has no claim to, to royalty really. And he's constantly just sort of underfoot and being kicked around and nobody really thinks very highly of him. Although his uncle, Kemlek, uh, does take him in and try to be friendly with friendly That's That's one of my... Um, that's one of my issues with this story. It took a it took a lot to really for me to get into it yeah. and, and to start really being able to follow it because it's very much trying to tell the story of Merlin, but it's also very much trying to root itself in other tellings of Merlin's story and history uh, and, and a lot of other things. And so there are a lot of characters that are named that don't really matter to this story. So we have all these named characters, usually in a story, a modernly written story. When I hear a named character, I'm like, Oh, that's somebody important. I should remember them. Um, But then a lot of them don't really go anywhere. And some of them are like this servant person that hung out with Merlin a lot and whatever. And then, you know, eventually they died and and that was tragic, but then you just sort of move on and it's not a big deal. (laughs) You know, it's like, there's a lot of that, you know. Kamlak, yes. Kamlak um, appears early more. His story yeah. hangs on for like the first half of the book, yeah, uh, and, and is fairly influential to the story. Yes, um, but yes, there's but there's a lot of other characters who don't. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, so. his his nurses that he goes through when he was young, they 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 come in and they come out and they say they're little bit parts, but then. Right. They disappear. <laughs> the nurses, the most of the most of you know, he he at various points, despite the fact that he at one point like basically doesn't consider himself royal, gives up his royalty, yeah. whatever. Somehow he always seems to have a a servant assigned to him. <laughs> that, oh, yeah. that and they come and go as well, and some of them die tragically and whatever. But like, sure, but we didn't really get a chance to really care about him anyway, and it yeah. doesn't seem that Merlin cares that much. He cared the most, I guess, about the first one because um, when he died, he set the whole palace on fire to have a funeral pyre for him. <laughs> in D&D terms, this is basically you going through a bunch of small bit part uh, bit part NPCs that are big right. dudes, which when the players want a name, you look at your list of random names that you generated and you just sure. strip one out and voila, here you go. Yep. <laughs> so, so really young Merlin... Sometimes wanders off because he can, because nobody really cares what he's up to. Yeah. Uh, and at one point, he wandered off away from the castle and found this cave. And in this cave, he met uh, an old man named Gallopus, um, who and, and further in, there's a chamber in the cave that's like this sphere coated in crystals. And when in there, he sees visions of the future. Um, whether or not the cave causes the visions or it triggers the visions that are already in him is a little bit unclear. Well, before he even sees the Crystal Cave, he does talk about stuff he knows ahead of time and all that. So it's not the Crystal Cave that really gives him the vision. He already knows. Well, right. But but he even says at one point, I don't know if the Crystal Cave gave me the visions when I was there. Like, were those part of his natural abilities or was it just visions from the cave? We don't know. No. And honestly, despite the title of the book, the cave's not really that important anyway. 
<laughs> so. It's there at the start when we are seeing the old Winterland who is telling him his story from the start right. from the cave and get the cave introduced. My sort of imagining is that maybe the cave actually just helps focus his visions. For his I mean, sure. I think that's a fine interpretation. Yeah, no, I was actually, I was actually kind of hoping and a little bit disappointed because, um, I thought we were going to discover that Gallopus is was an alias and that it was actually old Merlin used magic to go back in time and train himself as a child and that it was just going to be this endless loop of Merlins. Um, and then and then you read the – well, I read the author's note at the end. You didn't. Um, where she basically describes that um, the entire – like the source material that inspired this book – was from I even forget who it was a, a relatively famous famous Arthurian poet um, who wrote a poem and in the poem had this line about Merlin of we found him by the font of Gallopus and that's where the character of Gallopus came from and that's where the crystal cave was invented uh, it was just this line in a poem of we found him by the font of of Gallopus um, but I was kind of hoping that it would it, that it would have been really cool if, if Merlin had gone back in time to, to create himself, right? I, I find that to, to be the kind of fun, wonky things. Yeah. And and there is, it's a, in a, you know, as I say, it's a little bit sci-fi, but there's a little bit of, there's allusions to sci-fi in here. I was actually surprised there was a, a moment um, later in the book when he describes sort of his visions of the future and talked about the day when... Um, people would be be traveling amongst the stars and stuff and he's clearly describing like a future of space travel yeah which is which was all the more interesting to me because my oldest son um just finished reading a novel that was uh that is uh, an arthurian novel but somebody reimagined it as a sci-fi story where arthur is is this woman in in a, you know a spaceship or whatever who you know, saves and unites the people and whatever. There are several of those. Sure. I, oh, but yeah. So. so anyway. So yeah, he goes to Gallopus. Gallopus helps him hone his visions-ish. Training. Um, learning. Trains him a little bit. Teaches him a little healing magic. Like nature. Right? So. Um, the, the implication being that um, Merlin is one part artificer, one part cleric of an unknown god <laughs> although he does train as a druid kind of sort of at one point too yeah uh, it, in D terms i was thinking more maybe a diviner than a uh... yeah but i don't even know that he counts as a wizard yeah no. I, I i find this to be true and, and i had this conversation with my youngest child as well when i was talking about this book with him like when you get into pre D D, especially i mean there's exceptions of course but pre D D fantasy stories depict magic users and wizards and whatever as actually being fairly low magic and just really smart and clever people who know how to do science and math. Well, they, 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 they really inspire themselves a lot on Gandalf. Well, and that, that was my other example was it was Merlin and Gandalf, neither of which I think would count as D and D wizards. <laughs> Not in these depictions. No. Because D is much more flashy in right. Her. Well, and it's lots of magic, whereas Gandalf throws in a little bit of of magic, but not very often, you know. And Merlin has visions, 
and has some healing powers. Which arguably could be just being an apothecary and, and mixing the right herbs and things together in some cases. Or could be his druid, like, druid aspect. Right. That's why, I'm saying, that's why I'm saying diviner slash druid. Yeah, yeah. To do the D&D of class. Yeah. But, Maybe. Yeah, I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Uh, point being that that the the supposition of magic in the world is um is such that it doesn't translate well to D&D because D&D by default imagines a much more magical world than than what we otherwise see so uh, in these kinds of books so anyway yeah he goes to Gallopus he learns a little bit of magic uh at some point his grandfather dies um it's his servant's fault that his grandfather dies kind of his servant like spilled some oil or whatever and the grandfather slipped on it and, and died uh, so they blamed him and killed him. Um, and at that point, Merlin realizes that he's in trouble. Um, Kumlock, the uncle who at one point early in his life was kind of nice to him, is not nice to him anymore. Um, was it Kumlock who tried to poison him? Yeah, basically. Well, because he Kumlock was fearing that um, basically Merlin would be trying to take over since he is... Somewhere in the line of secession, right? Line of secession, so right. So, so he tried to poison him. Merlin realized that we're in trouble. Found his dead, his executed servant, um, and ran away after setting a, a funeral pyre inside the palace or inside the castle for his servant. So, uh, when later on, when he would return, and, and people are like, "Oh, you're still alive. We thought you had died in that fire." Why did you set that fire? What what was going on? Were you, did you try to burn the castle down? What what the what the heck, right? And he's like, no, nah, just my friend died, and I knew this is how he would have wanted gone out. And so, yeah. and I couldn't go go out and do it outside. Somebody would have caught me. So, uh. so yeah, he runs off, uh, gets captured by um, by men for another king named Ambrosius. Um, he lies about who he is for a while and they snatch him and they take him across the by sea back to the mainland. Although Wales is connected to the mainland. I guess the boat was just faster. Um, and he escapes them because he doesn't trust anything. They, they had talked about like executing him or whatever and, and um just taking his whatever information he had and, and being rewarded for that instead of bringing him in. Um, so ultimately he escapes and runs in as sort of this poor, you know, cold <laughs> beggar person into the city, um, but demands, you know, explains that he needs to see Ambrosius and uh, somehow that happens. Right. I, I can't imagine most like outsiders, outsiders who are beggars and, and, poverty-stricken, wandering around in the city, demanding to see the king, then get to see the king. But when you're Merlin, you do, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> so he gets to see the king. He tells his, his tale. Uh, he's a little more forthright and honest with the king than he was with the people who grabbed him, uh, at which point the king realizes, although it doesn't become clear to Merlin for another, what, couple of chapters, that... Ambrosius, the king who is trying to conquer and unite all of the different kingdoms of, of Britain, 
uh, and the surrounding areas, um, is in fact his father. Yeah. Uh, despite all the legends that he was born to a, a demon. And so he ends up working for Ambrogius for a while. Yeah. And basically that's when uh, Ambrosius takes a man, hires a druid, Belarius, to tutor him. Yeah. A, a, druid, a druid who officially is a little undercover as a druid, right? Um, like Ambrosius knows he's a Because at one point Merlin like finds him doing druidy stuff. Yeah. And and the guy tells him he's gonna he's gonna train him, uh, or teach him a little bit about druid craft or, or what what have you, and and Merlin is not shy about like okay I'd, I'd like to do that, and then he goes immediately back to to Dad Ambrosius the king who, you know, has made it illegal to be a druid and tells him you know this guy's a druid right and Ambrosius is like yeah we know but he's not really hurting anybody whatever he's <laughs> you know? so, working for us <laughs> yeah he's working for us he's not hurting anybody that's fine go learn no big deal. Yep. Um, and so that's where we get a little bit of druidiness for Merlin as well. And then eventually it becomes part, you know, we keep fast forwarding through time, but eventually goes off and works for dad to help him conquer his old home in the South Wales, um, infiltrate home and, and, you know, get information because he can wander freely. He's from there. They know him. Uh, and then, you know, share that information with Ambrogius to help with the conquering. Yeah. But would also the uh, with Uther. Or yeah, he goes he, well. With, he he wasn't with Uther then, but he he teams up. He's he is given the charge to team up with Uther later. At yeah. first, he goes by himself, and he meets his cousin, the other bastard, who's um, who was generally held in higher regard. Although uh, at this point, home is kind of falling apart. Mom lives in a nunnery. Um, Cumlock has died. Vortigern is is running things and has run off to try to to build up a, a fortification uh, in an easily defendable place, uh, but has having trouble with it. And and but home is more or less in shambles. Um, that's actually the the helping Vortigern deal with the walls that keep falling and and the the prophecy that comes out of that is the other part of this poet's account that the the author says okay basically came well was inspired by that right in this one it was well dig down or go down in this ravine below the walls you're trying to build and find the pool of water and drain the pool of water and you'll find you know a dragon or, or dragons in there and and they do, and it's kind of a mess, and they find some big stones and whatever. Um, in the in the poem that inspired it, it was basically the exact same story, except it was actual dragons down there, and they fought, and one of them won, and that was the prophecy, you know, that everybody um, got right. Is is yeah. the 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 red dragon represented Ambrosius, and the white dragon was Vortigern, and Ambrosius was going to win. But then we also get the, uh, I think it was then that that vision had the little hint of, and then out of the west, a, a great bear will come. Yes. Um, and, and that becomes important if you know the Arthurian legend, because Arthur is the bear. Yeah. Um, so yeah, and so uh, then he's sent on another mission after his homeland is conquered, more or less. He's sent on another yeah. mission to uh, go off to Ireland uh, with with Uther 
Um, and one of the tasks is to get one of these giant stones, right? There's a legend of some giant of a man who sort of carried this stone from England to, to Ireland and Ambrosius wants it back, right? To, to put in this monument that he's building uh, for himself. Um, he wants this, this special stone back that was stolen from, from his home and taken to Ireland, but it's too big and there's no giants around to carry it anymore. So how are they going to get in? So that's why Merlin has to go because he can figure out the, the artifice, the machines that are going to allow him to, to easily pry up the stone yeah. and bring it's, it back. He has engineering knowledge of right. Tools. And it wasn't, sure. it wasn't clear, clear to me because I don't know the locations of the towns that are being yeah. referenced. Um, but in the author's note, it became clear that I'm pretty sure the stone uh, is uh, Stonehenge is modern yeah. is the, the what is Stonehenge now. So, um, and she goes on to say, and and there is a large stone that uh, is there that is not matched the other stones was not put there at the same time as the other stones uh, that could have been that stone and does seem to, uh, according to to. Um, research seemed to indicate that there is a body buried under it. So let's just, uh, for our purposes, we're going to say that that's Ambrosius because while they were gone and doing that, Ambrosius dies kind of off camera, uh, <laughs> you know, because characters just come and go. And if it's not yeah. about Merlin, uh, directly at that moment, then, you know, whatever, who cares? Yeah. Um, and that means that Uther is now, um, the ruler. Yes. Uh, and that's where we start running really headlong into the beginnings of the Arthurian legend that more people are familiar with. Uh, Uther, who names himself Pendragon, uh, who, if you know Arthurian legend, is the, the father of Arthur. Um, ha, you know, he, he and Merlin don't always see eye to eye. They don't get along real well. They recognize that there's a, there's a familiar, familial connection and... Uh, they're useful to each other. So Uther's like, you know what? You go off to your crystal cave. You can have that as thanks for all the things you've done. That's your, yours now. Um, but otherwise, you know, just leave me alone. I'll leave you alone. If I ever need you, I'll let you know. And then right. lo and behold, <laughs> I need you. Uh, yes. Because there's this woman I like. Right. Well, and it's it's the most like dark ages, medieval european storytelling ever that like and then there was the king and he was so desperately in love with another man's wife uh that he w would do any and, you know he was out of his head over it and whatever in, in the most unrealistic way possible right <laughs> it's like people aren't that but that's happens that kind of thing happens all the time right uh one would think as, as much as like these kinds of stories make it a really big deal to honor the sanctity of marriage. Like it's really important in society and they make it really clear it's important to society. Yet every main character breaks the, the sanctity of marriage. Like whether it's Arthur, Lancelot and Guinevere or, or in this case, Uther and Igraine um, and Gorlice, uh, I think was Igraine's husband. Uh, it, it's constant, right? <laughs> yeah, it's constant. And, and they, sh they show the big sanctity and all how it is important. So that's why when the character breaks it, they sh people know like, oh, mm -hmm. he did something big and harsh into 
into this. Right. So. So Uther calls for, for Merlin. Merlin comes and Uther's big problem that he desperately needed uh, our, uh, Merlin's help with was, I, I really like this woman, but she's married to this guy. Yeah. Um, make that work out for me. That was basically the charge. <laughs> I got to have her. She's already married to this old man. Make that work. Um, and ultimately, what ha- through a long series of machinations and manipulations, uh, Merlin learns that she also likes Uther. So that's not going to be a problem. You don't have to force her to fall in love with him or whatever. Um, but so there's these long manipulations of, well, we're going to end up we're going to end up starting a war over this. There's no not yeah. starting a war over it. Um, but we will sneak you into the castle where she's being held during the war while her husband is away. And you can finally be with her, yeah. you know, um, and, and he disguises them to look like other, you know, like the King Gorlis uh, and, and his servants that are supposed to be there. Um and and then basically he does. Uther yeah. goes in and, and, and this whole time Merlin's like, look, this is not a morality issue. Merlin uh, at no point in time is a character that seems to be worried about morals. No. Right? He's, he's a character of, well, I had this vision. Now I'm, I just have to play my part to, to see this vision out. Yeah. And he, and it's weird because he he exercises in some ways he exercises zero agency. He's like, I had the vision, I have to see the vision out. There's nothing I can do. Uh, there's no there's never a thought of I've had this vision. I'm not sure how I feel about it. I'm just going to change it. No, there's there's never for his visions. There it's more. I always see it more as he's okay. So I had this vision. It needs to be done. How do I do? How do I do it? Right. And that's where his agency comes in, which is not making the decision of what will happen. It's how do I make this happen? <laughs> I don't know that he even exercises. I don't know that Merlin at any point has any agency of his own. I don't even know that Merlin has any motivations. His only motivation is to see these visions out. Yeah. Uh, and But he's also of the opinion, like, it doesn't matter what I do. The visions are going to happen. So and and so, there's not even any thought of like let's make this happen in the most peaceful, least blood bloodthirsty way possible. Because like he started a war in order to sneak Uther in so that he could sleep with another man's wife. <laughs> you know, yeah. uh, you know, M- Merlin is not a moral individual in this story. Uh, he is the protagonist. He is not a hero. Um, no. He's not. A, he's not a bad person either, though. He's just he lacks the agency. The vision is going to happen, so I'm just going to make the vision happen. Uh, and that's all there is to it, right? Um, so it's interesting now that I think about that. So anyway, Uther goes in, sleeps with another man's wife. Turns out the other man had died anyway, so I guess it was okay. Uh, not that not that they knew that when they enacted the plan, but there we are. Uh, and and then Uther comes out and is just livid at Merlin, like you've just created more problems. By, by enabling... By helping me do the thing I wanted to do, that I desperately wanted to do and forced you to help me with, I'm really angry with you because you enabled me to do this thing. Right? And, and, you know... uh, Why didn't you stop me? Yeah, why didn't you stop me? Why didn't you stop me from doing this thing that I forced you to help me to do? Um, And and the other person, I even forget who it was because none of the other characters matter, uh, uh, 
even asked Merlin a- after that, like, aren't you upset the king is mad at you and whatever? And, and Merlin's like, no, I got exactly what I wanted. Um, you know, all I needed was Uther to sleep with Igraine because now that they have, they have conceived Arthur. Arthur will be the great hero that the, that the land uh, really needs. He will unify everybody. He will be the great bear from the West who will bring all of England together uh, or all of Britain together um, and, and, and lead us into glory and, and, and prosper and what have you. Right. Uh, and, and so I've done what I needed to do. Vision has been upheld. The end. Although there are other, then there's other stories. There's other stories in the series. Right. But, but that was the, and then, yeah, and he just sort of goes back and lives in the Crystal Cave. Presumably he, he comes back when Arthur is born to raise him because it is, it is mentioned that um, both Igraine and Uther abandoned the boy. And in the author's note, she mentions that uh, in her sources of inspiration, Merlin came and took the boy and raised him. So so there we are. That's, that's more or less the book, right? That's, yeah, more or less. I mean... <laughs> Well, so there's lots of things that happen. There's lots of things yeah, that I mean, happen. Lots of machinations, but yeah, yeah. That that is that is me summarizing a book in 30 minutes that it took me 12 hours to listen to. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, so what did we? What did you think about the book? It's for me the Arthurian books. It, it, it did not read to me like an Arthurian book. Mm. Like. Uh, it's at least it was not what I was expecting when I was reading it. Mm-hmm. So, uh, which was was pleasant. It was like I said, there was lots of stuff, lots of machinations, lots of intrigue that was happening in the, in the book between folks, which really, in the end, doesn't come out to anything, or we don't really see much because the focus is on Merlin, and we already he already knows how to scan. Oh, actually, everyone, the reader also already knows how this happened because we're really familiar. If you're reading this, your odds are you're familiar with the general legend of Arthur. So. Probably, yeah. I, I feel like in some ways, like there is a part of me who has read many books that are retelling the story of Arthur. So, so there's a part of me that has an interest in this, right? That, yeah. that, that has heard other or read other retellings and is interested in how this one plays out. Yeah. Um, this book feels like, so I don't know. There's a way that older fantasy sometimes does uh, storytelling. Uh, and, and it seems to be relatively commonplace up through the seventies, really. Uh, maybe beyond, wherein the story unfolds around the characters. It is not a story about what the characters do. Yes. Right? And I feel like there's a little bit of that. No, I feel like there's a lot of that in this, right? This is not a story about what Merlin has done and who Merlin is. This is a story about the things that happened around Merlin as he grew up. That, that, you know... In Dini terms, basically, the author is basically railroading Merlin along the way, and stuff is happening, and Merlin is just, oh, just there on the way and accepting it. I mean, it's 
railroading, but in a way that the PC, in this case of Merlin, is accepting. There's no conflicts. Well, forever, no right. Back. If if somebody were adapting this story into a D&D adventure, it would be the classic uh, response of, if you're going to railroad this much, just write the novel. Yeah. This, this, should, this isn't a game, yeah. <laughs> right? Uh, the um, in Pendragon, the RPG of Pendragon, there is the Great Pendragon campaign, which is a big, huge campaign, which is like eighty-four sessions long, because uh, you're going from the time of Uther, Pendra- Uther when he becomes Pendragon, t- till the end of Arthur's reign, mm-hmm. and every year is a session, because uh, that's how Pendragon works. Okay, but. Uh, the start of I've read the start of of Pendragon because I was trying to possibly run it, but I just don't have the time. Uh, <laughs> it's eighty four sessions. That's if you do two years. If you if you play once a week, uh, give or take, you're gonna yeah, it's gonna take you almost two years. To... And I usually play play every other week, so yeah. Oh. Anyways, but the start of the start of it, they, they say that they provided two ways in this book to run it. There is the way that the PCs can act and make decisions. Change the story. And change the story, and they are the heroes and all that. Mm-hmm. Plus, and there's the other option that they provide, which is more of a theater mode, where the people who are supposed to be doing stuff in the story are there, they're the ones doing it, and the players are just there to view it and see it mm-hmm. and just participate. So this book feels more like that version of right. Well, and and there are certainly some classic D and D adventures that feel like that too. Like, look, the yeah. story is going to be the story regardless of what you do. Yeah. And oh, yeah. hon- honestly, uh, as much as people love like the the Dragonlance trilogy, um, and they wrote the adventures side by side with the the novels, as I recall, when they came out, um, yeah. the adventures run and feel a little bit like that right uh you know you 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 play the adventures and it's like okay i think you should just write the novels except of course they were writing the novels at the same time they were writing the adventures um you know it's it's a different approach than like um one of the other classic poorly adapted novels series into an adventure that they did for the forgotten realms was the avatar trilogy um which notoriously like it's going to play out the way it played out in the novels because you're not actually playing the characters from the novels. You're unlike Dragonlance. In Dragonlance, you're playing the characters from the novels. In the Avatar trilogy, um, when they converted that into an adventure, you're playing this group of adventurers that just always happen to be nearby when the major events were happening with the main characters. <laughs> and it's like so, so you can't affect the story because you're not actually the main characters in the story. You're just happens to be around while the main story is happening nearby. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, the, uh, the first adventure for, uh, dark sun, the freedom mm-hmm. adventure takes place at the same time as the first book, the different passage. Right. And it is, but you're not doing the stuff that the heroes are doing because they're off doing their stuff. Instead, literally the, the whole book is your characters at the start get captured, become slaves, work on the ziggurat, build up relationships and all that, and then the games happen, the, they, see, they witness the big event, and now they just have to escape. Now they're escaping. Or, escape. So, so really, the, the first book of the Prison Pintad is is the the opening salvo of the adventure. It's the it's the 
the, the introduction. Although the, uh, the no, actually, it's the end of the adventure. At the end of the adventure oh. is when the, the glider call has happened, Kallak gets killed off. Oh. See, and, my version would be more interesting. <laughs> well, yeah, well, basically, the whole adventure of, of freedom is literally, uh, is literally, okay, you're now a slave. Here's how you're being treated. You're building relationships within the slave. Uh-huh. So it's inside as you're working on this and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So... Uh, I read it once, and it was interesting, especially at the start when you're trying to capture the heroes to be to become slaves. So, which is like, well, the adventure won't continue unless you become that. But that's separate. But still, but yes, so. those those there's lots of adventures that exist in D and D as which so which yeah, the big where, where the story is happening around you instead of happening yeah. because of you. Yeah, so so otherwise, why might this book be of interest to D&D folks? Um, I mean, if they're not necessarily Arthurian-interested folks, but they're D&D folks, why might you pick up the Crystal Cave? Well, it can be useful as an inspiration if you're trying to build up a character that knows of someone who had vision, who's, who does prophecy and all that, that here's... Because literally, you're getting the the background of this of this character before the main story of Arthur really is happening. So this is literally like here is my 464 page background backstory. Backstory <laughs> to your GM. <laughs> yeah, it's a little um, like I think the way. I think this version of Merlin, change the name a little bit, whatever, could make a really interesting NPC in a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, this guy who has visions, who who has prop, you know, who prophesies things or whatever, um, and is really kind of nonplussed by the fact that he does that. Right? It, it's it's not really a big deal that he has visions to him. Uh, oh, okay. Well, that's a thing that's going to happen. Uh, he he has this vision of like. Uh, religion as well that I find interesting. Like uh, Merlin explicitly in this book mentions several times, like I've, I've come to believe that my visions come from a God and more and more, I'm starting to think there's just one God or at least one God over all the other gods. There's one like big God. I don't know what that God is. He just, so, so oftentimes he doesn't refer to, God, he refers to the God gave me this or the God did this because it's not, he, it's not, he's not buying into the Christian God. He's not buying into, uh, what is it? Mithras, the, the Roman God that, that Ambrosius, uh, worships. Um, you know, he's not buying into the Druidic religious system or whatever. Like he's, he's kind of the, the, I don't know, the fantasy agnostic, that like, uh, you know, I think I'm pretty sure, or, or I guess a, a, just a general theist, right? I'm pretty sure there's something yeah. out there. There's something ruling everything. There's something in charge that created the world. I don't know. I don't really know what it is. And he doesn't really seem to care either. Um, you know. <laughs> no. As we've said several, well, you said, but I agree with you too, is that, yeah, he doesn't have much motivation. He's just there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. It's like, what do you want in life? Just to get these visions to do what yep. you do. <laughs> I mean, the, literally the only 
maybe the only time he's ever shown any motivation for himself. I think he has two motivations of his own. One of them is just to like survive. He does seem to have some sort of survival instinct. Yeah. Uh, and he seems to have some sort of, although understated desire to have the crystal cave. Right. Yeah. Cause, cause Uther even, and, and, uh, and it mentions to him like, what, what do you want? What do you want as a reward? Just the crystal cave? Fine. Go have the crystal cave, right? And it was never like – you never get into his head. You never understand why he wants the crystal cave. You never even really hear him talk about wanting the crystal cave. It's just Uther just says, oh, what do you want? The crystal cave? Fine. You can have it. As, yeah. as if that's a conversation they'd had a million times. Yeah. Uh, although we were never privy to that. We were never told – anything about that other than, oh, apparently he wants to go back to the Crystal Cave. Yeah. Which I guess is the font of Gallopus. <laughs> that yes. We found Merlin. We found him by the font of Gallopus. Yeah. So, anyway. I'm still really disappointed that Gallopus wasn't Merlin from the future. Although maybe he was and Merlin just then came back and died a, a kind of yeah. anticlimactic death. <laughs> yeah. Well, because it would have made like because he even had this, there was even this thing when he first came. It's like when Merlin's like, so can I come back and visit you? Oh yes, you you absolutely are going to come back and visit me. So like Gallopus is also having visions, right? Yeah. Uh, and he's in, and then Merlin's like, so how will I let you know that I'm here? And Gallopus says, don't worry, I'll know when you're here. Yeah. You know, and Merlin kind of comes to the conclusion, oh, it's because when I come in, all the bats fly out and, and freak out, and you can see him coming, so he knows to to show up. And my my thought was, see, it should be because he's Merlin and he knows when you're going to be there because he was there, right? He was there in the past and he remembers yeah. when he's going to come. <laughs> so let's think. With the prologue, I get the impression that uh, uh, Merlin is like old Merlin present. It's like is trapped in a crystal cave somehow, or and he's telling the, the, this story. Know that, so, uh, so that's why. I'm, I mean, this is the first book of the of the, ser- of the right. series, so maybe we'll get if we read more, maybe there'll be more. Yeah, of, of the, so maybe it is Galapas, and maybe it is, maybe it is. Yeah, I mean, there, and, and there's a. It's interesting. There's a part of me. There's a part of me that did not enjoy this book enough to to keep reading. Hmm. There's another part of me that says, yes, but I like Arthurian legend. And I and I kind of enjoyed the end of this book when it started getting more familiar to the parts that that I knew. And now I, you know, and now I kind of want to know where it goes. So I don't know. Oh. The, you know, the, the part of me that doesn't care about a story that unfolds around characters, but not but the character's agency doesn't actually matter, uh, doesn't have much interest to me. The 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 story that names a million characters and none of them matter. Uh, doesn't really interest me, right? Um, but maybe I'll find some other Arthurian legend and read that instead. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> just to scratch that itch. Remember this? Uh, can you read out? What are you looking up? I am looking up the Fionnvar tapestry, uh, which has. It's not. It's it's a Gaia Real K series. Okay. So, linking for next for for next episodes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and I, 
from what I recall, at the the Fiona Var tapestry. Fiona tapestry, yeah. It starts with and the summer tree. Summer tree, yeah. And from what I recall, there was I thought I I thought there was a aspect of in it of uh, Arthurian story to it, but. I'm rereading the, the uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, there is, yes, there is inspiration from myths. Most obvious is that of King Arthur. Okay, okay. so yeah. Well, we we will read the the Tigana, Tigana uh, or yeah. Tigana or however we want to say it. Yeah, and uh, see if I enjoy the storytelling, and maybe we'll go check that out at some point. Oh yeah. So so all right. Any other last thoughts on this book? No, I'm good. Yeah. All right. Then we're going to call that the end yeah. of the episode. Uh, it's time to say goodbye. We want to say thanks to our patrons at Patreon who go to patreon.com slash the Tome Show and support us. Uh, if you want to email us, you can email the Tome Show at gmail.com. If you want to find me on Twitter, I'm at Squatch, S-Q-U-A-C-H. Eric is at Eric M. Pack. Eric with a C. E-R-I-C-M-P-A-Q. And you can find the show at, at the Tome Show. Uh, you can also find us on Facebook, Patreon, as I mentioned, and Discord. You can watch us live at twitch.tv slash tomeshow for when we uh, live stream our recordings. And you can watch the video after the fact uh, on the Tome Show's YouTube channel, which I eventually post things over from Twitch on the YouTube. Uh, you can find show notes and other great Tome Show shows at thetomeshow.com. And that is our thoughts on the Crystal Cave. Up next in April-ish, we'll be reading Tigana, Tigana... Tigana uh, by Guy Gavriel K. Until then, keep turning the page, Domites. I'm on the wall.